Good afternoon. This is Hooting Yard on the Air with me, Frank Key. I'm going to read to you for half an hour. This show has been described as um, somewhere as a farrago of twaddle. I didn't know twaddle came in faragos, but that's obviously the unit. Um, this week, uh, two more episodes from the exciting series Blodgett and his pals hanging around on a mysterious island after surviving a plane crash. And if there's time, I'll also read a story called The Evil Bakery. So anyway, here is a, another completely preposterously thrilling episode of um, the, the show that we call Blodgett Island, for short. Flashback. A car drives up to a motel in the middle of nowhere. It is not as spooky looking as the Bates Motel, but will something spooky occur? A woman seen from behind opens the boot of the car. It is full of lots of different number plates. She goes into her motel room and gets undressed for a shower. We still cannot see her face. In the shower, we see blonde dye running out of her hair. Aha! It's Marigold Chew. Next, we see her going into a post office to collect a letter that's waiting for her. She reads it and begins to weep. Marigold Chu is sitting on the beach holding a toy aeroplane. Pabster's Tack joins her strumming his guitar. He thinks that his band's record sales will increase because the world thinks he's dead. When the helicopters come to rescue us, we'll be ridiculously and eternally famous. Blasphemous Ted Kargpan is a science teacher who understands meteorology. He explains that the raft cannot be launched because the monsoon season is about to descend upon them and the raft will be forced in the wrong direction. The last possible day to leave was yesterday. Old Halob says they'll take a chance and leave tomorrow. Marigold Chu says she wants to go on the raft. During the advert break, there's a warning about a new film that contains emotional intensity. Would that it were so. Old Halob says there are no spare places on the raft. Marigold Chu says she can sail and that fictional athlete Bobnit Chival knows nothing about maritime matters. Flashback. Marigold Chu is walking through a hospital corridor carrying a bouquet of flowers. She is heading for room 208. There is a police officer sitting outside the room and she passes him nervously. One of the hospital doctors is getting into his car in the garage. His name is Dr Fang. Marigold Chu is sitting in his car. She tells Dr Fang she has come to see her mother who is dying of cancer and she needs Dr Fang's help. The grunty man is fishing. Tiny Enid says, please talk to me. I am going on the raft, grunts the grunty man. Lothar Preen and Dobson are trudging through the forest. They meet up with Blodgett and go to the hatch. Dobson, what is this thing? Blodgett, exactly. It's time we talked about this. The grunty man is packing salted fish onto the raft. Old Halob asks fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol if he has any knowledge of maritime matters. Are you voting me off? shouts fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol. He heads off angrily to see Marigold Chu. He tells her he knows she is a fugitive from justice. 
Your secret's safe with me, but you're not getting my spot on that raft. Marigold Chew says, If I want your spot, I'll get it. Dennis Beerpint asks Old Halob if they will come back for everyone else once they're rescued. Old Halob says it might be hard to find the island again. Then he seizes up with stomach cramps. Dennis Beerpint runs off to find Dobson. Blodgett says that he's known about the hatch for three weeks. Dobson wonders how they can open it. Lothar Preen thinks it might be dangerous to open it. Maybe it was never meant to be opened from outside. Marigold Chu runs up to say there is something wrong with old Halob. He is writhing on the ground. Dobson tends to him. Dennis Beerpint looks stricken. Flashback. Marigold Chu with Dr Fang. It's the middle of the night and they have three hours to kill. Do you think it's still there? says Marigold Chu. In the middle of nowhere, under a big tree, they take spades out of the boot of a car and start digging. There may be goats in the distance. Blodgett and Dobson are talking about Old Halob. Dobson thinks there's something in his water. Old Halob says he feels better if he neither moves nor breathes. It seems someone has deliberately poisoned him. Blodgett said he had no idea Marigold Chu was a fugitive from justice. There is much talk of who knows what and the use of discretion in the sharing of knowledge. Pabster's Tack is playing his guitar to Minnie Crunlop's baby. He is happy to be writing songs again. He suggests Minnie Crunlop should come and hang out with him after they're rescued. I think his new song is called Monster Eats the Pilot. Possibly. Dobson asks Marigold Chu if she poisoned old Halob. Marigold Chu, do you think I'm capable of that? Dobson, I don't know what you're capable of. Flashback, still digging. Marigold Chew's spade goes clunk. She disinters a small box full of her and Dr Fang's memorabilia. They sit in the car, looking through it and listening to a cassette, on which Dr Fang says, In 20 years we'll be married. To which Marigold Chew's reply is, As soon as I can drive, I'll just run away. They look at each other. Marigold chews sobs. They kiss. Blodgett and Dennis Beerpint. Blodgett is improvising a poultice for his leg, as he tends to do. Dennis Beerpint says he didn't poison old Halob. Blodgett says he knows Dennis Beerpint is innocent, even if he did burn the raft first time round. Dennis Beerpint gets a weird look in his eyes and suddenly says... Don't open that thing! Don't open that thing! He is not referring to the poultice, we surmise. 
Old Halob tells fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol he can't come on the raft because he's a liar and a criminal and he tried to poison him. So fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol goes to Marigold Chu and manhandles her and tips her bag open, shaking the contents onto the beach in front of the assembled throng. There is a passport among the things that Marigold Chu has stolen from a woman who drowned. Fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol says Marigold Chu cares about no one and nothing except herself. Flashback. At the hospital, Marigold Chu is with her dying mother, holding her hand and sobbing, trembling lower lip. There ought to have been a warning here about emotional intensity. Marigold Chu's mother looks at her and then starts croaking, Help! Help! to the hospital staff. Marigold Chu runs away. A policeman tries to stop her, but she knocks him out. She runs to Dr Fang's car and they screech away, but there are sirens and their path is blocked by a police car. She yells at Dr Fang to get out of the car, but he won't, so she puts her foot down, ready to ram her way to freedom. Oops. There are gunshots and she doesn't get very far before crashing. Dr Fang dies in the crash with the toy aeroplane from the memorabilia box on his lap. Marigold Chu runs away. On the beach, fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol asks Marigold Chu why she wants to run away so badly. Marigold Chu admits that she is a fugitive from justice, but insists that she didn't poison old Halob. Mrs Gubbins wanders past looking sulky. Everyone looks at Marigold Chu judgmentally and walks away from her, leaving her sitting there holding the toy aeroplane. Tiny Enid and Dobson watch the finishing touches being put to the raft. Dobson says he knows that Tiny Enid was trying to poison the grunty man to stop him going, but the water bottles got mixed up with old halobs. Tiny Enid says she only wanted to make him ill enough so he wouldn't be able to leave. Dobson says he won't tell anybody. Marigold Chu and fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol exchange meaningful looks over the bonfire. Fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol tells her he's back on the crew of the raft, despite knowing nothing of maritime matters. Dennis Beerpint tells old Halob that he set fire to the raft because he didn't want to leave. Tiny Enid tells Marigold Chu that Dobson knows about the poison plot, but not that the whole thing was actually Marigold Chu's idea. Ah, such narrative complexity! So before the next episode of Blodgett Island, um, with its narrative complexity, here, here, as promised, is a story called The Evil Bakery. Eek, eek, 
trilled the twins as they turned a corner by the market square and saw, looming above them, the big dark walls of the evil bakery. It was a sinister, if familiar, sight. Instinctively, the twins clutched each other's hands as from behind the iron gates they heard what they knew was the bellowing of the hairy man. They hoped they would be able to pass by without him seeing them, but they suspected that, as ever, the hairy man would be peering out at the street through his powerful binoculars, and they were right. As they tried to flit past, wishing themselves invisible, the hairy man thrust one of his massive hairy paws through the railings and beckoned them. He stopped bellowing for a moment. The twins' legs had turned to jelly. Clouds scudded across the sky. Across the way, a French Impressionist painter captured the scene with swift, sure brushstrokes. The twins, the hairy man, even the vast, gloomy bakery itself are all just a blur, as they are in my memory. It's hard to believe that 50 years have passed since this scene took place. I should be here telling you about tin, tin and zinc and titanium, but I'm ever drawn back to the evil bakery and the twins and the hairy man with his binoculars. What did he say to them when, terrified, they responded to his beckoning paw as if drawn by magnetism? Is it true that he merely gave them each a pastry and sent them on their way? That later, as they sat outside the owl library, they chuckled as the fruit filling of the pastries dribbled down their chins? What exactly did under-sheriff Coggery mean when he testified later that the very air of the town that day had a tang of rare oriental spices and of diesel fumes? I'm standing on the bridge now and hailstones are pinging off my hat and still the mystery remains. The hairy man lies buried in the churchyard, the twins of course are entombed in some giant foreign cathedral and the evil bakery itself is no more. It was torn down after the events of that day, in riots, and on the site there now stands a teenage milk bar, wherein scruffy youngsters strum guitars and sing inane songlets, oblivious to the evil spirits flying round and round, invisible. And after that interlude in an evil bakery, here is another episode of Blodgett Island. Flashback. Dennis Beerpint is looking out of a hotel window. He has a row with old Halob about watching television at 5.32 in the morning. Dennis Beerpint runs off down the hotel corridor, yelling that old Halob is not his father. On the beach, approaching dawn. Dennis Beerpint and old Halob are happily together now. Dennis Beerpint walks over to a tree to do a wee and sees the mad Tantarabim woman, armed with a rifle, stalking around the camp. She sees him. He wakes old Halob 
Everyone else wakes up excitedly. Lothar Preen tells everyone to calm down. The mad Tantarabim woman announces, The others are coming. She explains that 16 years ago, her ship ran aground on the island. There were six of them in all. She was seven months pregnant and delivered the baby all by herself. On the same day, they saw a pillar of black smoke in the forest. That night, the others came and took her baby away. Now they're coming again for all of you. You have three choices. You can run, you can hide, or you can die. Thrilling stuff, eh? Dobson wants to stick with what is tangible, which means the raft. They have to set rails on the beach to launch it. Everyone helps begin pushing it into the water to the accompaniment of stirring music. But there is a mishap which old Halob seems to blame on fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol. Then they see a huge plume of black smoke rising in the forest, just like the mad Tantarabim woman said. Lothar Preen asks the mad Tantarabim woman how many of them there were. She says, I told you all I know. I can vanish into the jungle, but there are 40 of you. Dobson, Blodgett and Eust van Dongelbrack take the mad Tantarabim woman to the hatch. Lothar Breen, Preen points out, not unreasonably, that the hatch might belong to the others. They still don't know how to open it. The mad Tantarabim woman points out that she has a stash of dynamite at Blister Lane Bypass, but they will have to collect it before nightfall. Flashback. Dobson is sitting in the airport bar. A woman we have never seen before joins him and starts chatting him up. Then she takes a call on her phone and walks off, promising to continue their chat on the plane. They exchange seat numbers. Dobson tells everyone that they have a plan, but they have to head off into the forest to get supplies. He tells them to get the raft into the water and then to go and hide in the caves. Blasphemous Ted Kargpan says that the dynamite will be volatile, so he had better join the group to make sure that they don't get blown up. Flashback. Fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol is under arrest after having a fight with an important municipal official. The detective says he knows fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol's real identity and that he is a con man who preys on the sick and the needy. You're being deported, he says. Fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol is now chopping bamboo for the raft. Dobson gives him a revolver. You're the only one going on the raft who knows how to use one. Fictional athlete Bobnit Duvall tells Dobson that about a week before the flight, he met Dobson's father in a bar and how Dobson's father said he wanted to say sorry to Dobson and that he loved him. Hearing this news, Dobson begins sobbing copiously. Flashback. At the airport, the marshal who has Marigold Chu under arrest is checking in a case with five guns in it. The airline person wants to know why he needs so many firearms. The marshal tells the story of how he has been chasing after Marigold Chu for three years and how she has been taunting him, but he knew how desperate she was to get her hands on Dr Fang's toy aeroplane. 
Marigold Chew attacks the marshal, and as she is restrained, he says, That's why I need five guns. Marigold Chu says she wants to join the dynamite gathering gang. The plume of smoke is ominously visible in the background. Pabster's Tack is wandering around getting people to put messages in a bottle. The dynamite gang say farewell to the raft crew. Then they head off into the forest, following the mad Tantarabim woman. Blodgett asks her where she got those scratches. A bush. Blodgett thinks it must have been a ferocious bush. We must keep going, she says. Blasphemous Ted Cargpan is cantankerous. They enter the Dark Territory. The Blister Lane Bypass is not far now. Sixteen years ago, someone lost an arm here. We must move quickly, says the mad Tantarabim woman. Blasphemous Ted Cargpan decides he doesn't want to lose his arm and is going back to the beach. Back at the raft, fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol brings the perfectly hewn bamboo mast he's been working on. The dynamite gang are trudging through the rain. There are strange noises, barking or howling. Blasphemous Ted Cargpan reappears, panicking, shouting, Run! Run! crashing and deep booming noises. They hide in some foliage and there is sudden silence. The mad Tantarabin woman explains it's a security system to protect the island. Dennis Beerpint asks Mrs Gubbins why she's folding clothes. Because I'm anal, she replies. Dennis Beerpint gives his dog to Mrs Gubbins, explaining that the dog is a good listener and she can talk to it about Ah Fang van der Hugendorp. Flashback, Mrs Gubbins is at the airport. Lothar Preen asks if she can watch his bag for a minute. Ah Fang van der Hugendorp arrives and he and Mrs Gubbins start arguing. Mrs Gubbins reports Lothar Preen to the security people. Lothar Preen gives the raft crew some electrical and other equipment he has salvaged, including a single flare. He's that kind of guy. The dynamite gang arrives at Blister Lane Bypass. They look at a huge, ruined old sailing ship looming there mysteriously. Flashback. Tiny Enid and the Grunty Man at the airport. Tiny Enid spills coffee all over the Grunty Man. A bitchy couple nearby talk about them, not realising that Tiny Enid understands every word. Tiny Enid and the Grunty Man are on the beach. She gives him a list of useful nautical words she has written down for him. He sobs and says he's sorry. She sobs too. They hug and sob and apologise to each other and kiss and sob. Pabster's tack is still filling a bottle with messages. There is a silent scene of meaningful looks and hand-holding and farewells and general bonding. The raft is launched. The dog swims out to follow it, but Dennis Beerpint tells it to go back, and it does. 
On the raft are Old Halob, Dennis Beerpint, The Grunty Man and fictional athlete Bobnit Tivol. There is stirring music as those on the beach look meaningfully at the raft sailing away into the blue vastness. And behind them, the plume of black smoke rises still. And um, finally, on on this week's show, it's a I don't know about elsewhere in the world, but here in London, it's fairly gloomy and cold and wretched. And um, anyway, yes, I thought well, something seasonal. So this is um, what to do on a winter's day in Tantarabim. This handy guide has been produced by the Tantarabim Tourist Board, a body riddled with corruption from top to toe although its internal politics need not concern the innocent listener, who really merely wishes to spend a few joyous hours in the bailiwick of Tantarabim on a cold and blustery winter's day, swaddled in woollen garments against the elements. Let's start again. This is a handy guide to the sorts of activities you and your family can enjoy in Tantarabim during the winter months, should you be unlucky enough to have your plane make a forced landing there due to storminess. Surely the only reason to go anywhere near Tantarabim in the first place, given how frightening it is. Having said that, for the tourist who does not mind discomfort and privations, Tantarabim can be a source of much entertainment and interest if the words are used loosely, very loosely. So put on your hat and come with me now as we creep past the gore-splattered beasts with venomous fangs which guard all approaches to the town, and I shall list at least five things you can do when stuck in Tantarabim during a blizzard. 1. Plummet helplessly down one of the many hidden chutes which deliver you into a flaming pit. 2. Be poked at with pointed sticks by cloven-hooved imps spitting sulphur. You'll have lots of fun trying to shake them off, but we guarantee you won't succeed. 3. Take a guided tour of the Chock Ice Factory. The price includes the opportunity to taste their wares. 4. Become embroiled in a fight to the death with Bone Crusher Tim, an untamed python which has been deprived of food for months. And finally, number 5. Spend a night in one of Tantarabim's many inns, where you will be entranced by the primitive gaslight, inexplicable nighttime banging and crashing noises, swarms of phantom locusts, and walls and ceilings that seem to move when you're not looking. Most inns do not charge for children under 16, probably because they're likely to be abducted by strange amphibious monsters and dragged into the sea.
So that's all from Hooting Yard on the air for this week. Um, I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'm going to leave you with a quotation from Milo Hastings, whoever he may have been, um, in his preface to Bran the Iconoclast. And he wrote as follows. Take these words to heart. Colossal, crude, terrible and sublime, Bran opened the ears of the people by the mighty power of his untamed language, by the smashing fury of his wrath of words. Waste, futile and planless, mere howling, empty, chaotic waste, for no purpose under heaven but to serve as food for idle fancies as to what might have been. Such to me is the death of Bran, and my throat chokes with sorrow, and my soul is sick with vain despair. Bye-bye, listeners. <laughs>